I am Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. So today we're going to be talking about Solaris, which is a 1961 science fiction novel written by Polish writer Stanislav Lem. Can I just say that we really chose two books back to back that I feel like if people were following along with us, they've stopped. (laughs) Like, uh, no, 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 that's that's not fair. That's not fair. You didn't have to read these books. You didn't, you know, if you didn't read these books. Who will know? We don't know. You could say yes, and I'd go, okay. I admit to skimming several sections in this book. I can imagine exactly what those sections were. Every time we went to the library, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, we're going back to the library. There were sections where I literally forgot that there was a plot. Like, he went off on such a tangent. It does feel there were several points in this book that felt a lot like Star Maker, where it was just... Let me sit here and pontificate to you about the nature of reality and human consciousness. And mm, no, it doesn't. It's if it like had filler. Just, if it had been pontificating about the limits of human consciousness, I think I probably could have taken it. But if it was like, here's this elaborately described natural phenomenon on this planet that doesn't exist, on this ocean that doesn't exist, that literally is like five pages of me talking about gelatinous stuff solidifying and foam and pits. And, and then here's goo a complete history and, and summary of. The development of the academic study of this planet. And here's an alphabetical list of all the (laughs) theories, the hypotheses of how this brain planet works. You know what it really puts into perspective? That's where it got a little much. Uh, It puts the Lord of the Rings into perspective, right? Because it it really was, you don't realize it, but it was J.R.R. Tolkien doing for doing for fantasy what these dudes are doing for sci-fi, which is I'm going to create an actual world. Here we go. This is a real tangible world that he has created that none of it matters and none of it exists. With but, deep fictional history. But he gives you the he gives you the deep lore of Solaris. And, and so this was the pendulum swinging too far. Yeah, this feels like, wow. I mean, there's world building in the context of here's this really epic adventure and I'm going to do a lot of world like we're going to encounter these natural phenomenon and I'm going to describe them to you as I'm experiencing them. And then there's, oh, I was looking at this book and it reminded me about this Q15 pages of describing gelatinous ooze becoming large columns and then disintegrating back into the ooze and how right, many like the, people have been killed studying that phenomenon. The point and, of view character of the book was paraphrasing like entire scientific textbooks yeah on this subject 
And that was a little bit much. Yeah. Our main character is Chris Calvin. And we open with him arriving on the planet. And I always like these 1960s, prior to 1960s sci-fis, where we have really out-of-reach technology like anti-gravity. And artificial gravity. Artificial gravity. We have all kinds of really, like, automated... We don't see them, but there are automatons. There are self-sufficient robots that perform a lot of the functions on spaceships and on the station. And yet all propulsion is still rocket driven and combustion based. And I always, it's just, it's not retro futurism and yet it kind of is where they can only imagine space propulsion as actual combustion. Well, the one time they're talking about a ship leaving the station. Yeah. He talks about the mini reactor. He activates the mini reactor. Yeah. So it's, in my mind, the the mini reactor was generating energy for, I don't know, like ion thrust where you generate right. a big magnetic field that but shoots charred particles out really fast. Yeah. He gets burned from it. Yeah. But there's... I guess anything coming out of a thruster is going to be moving fast and temperature is just the average velocity of all the particles is higher than the stuff around it. It just felt... So maybe even like... A, a non-combustion-related thrust is still going to be hot enough to burn you? Yep, sure. It just felt, I don't want to say anachronistic because this isn't a time that exists, right. <laughs> but it just felt uh, inconsistently chromatic, chronistic. Inconsistent chronistic. Inconsistent chronistic, yeah, where it was like, ooh, here's space-age technology, but also rockets. And also we use cork to close up glass bottles and we still bandage our ba our wounds up with gauze and uh, we still shower with water and <laughs> where do we get the water from what I what I really wanted what what felt okay this felt really weird yeah as a contrast in technology they have this research station that is it's a big research station yeah and it's on this giant disc. And the giant disc produces, like, the lift, like, yeah. anti-gravity, whatever, to suspend it above the surface of the planet. And then at the end of the book, he goes to investigate one of these, like, structures that pops up out of the, the gel. And he uses a helicopter? He uses a helicopter. Yes. Why don't we have a shuttle that uses anti-gravity? I don't know. Unless it's too energy intensive and you can't fit that amount of power in a right. helicopter. Yeah. My my rationalization for that was that the the energy production system that's on the station, or I guess the energy production system that you need to produce an anti-gravity field requires a really big generator or yeah. reactor or whatever. And it's too big to to fit onto the helicopter. Yeah. Also, the ships that they fly around on the planet are not hermetically sealed, so they have to wear a spaceship in them. They are not. They are not bubbles of um, atmosphere. They're porous, so they're like a regular everyday helicopter that they just fly around on the planet. Right. Yeah. the The doors on the helicopter don't seal. Yeah. So you have like, to wear your spacesuit the whole time you're in 
the ship, the shuttle or the helicopter. Or yeah, whatever. which leads to problems because the the atmosphere is so toxic, it clogs up their breathing apparatus very quickly. Right. And yet we never That's at any flaw. point seal them, like make them. Plus, we've been studying this planet for, at this point, I think almost 100 years, and yet we're using the same technology to explore the planet. Well, when they discussed the like exhaust ports getting clogged, why did they have an exhaust port? You could have a closed... So, eh, whatever. Yeah. That's not... Because <laughs> it's the 1960s. I'm, I'm critiquing imaginary technology. Yes, you are. But sorry. the only time I remember them discussing the exhaust ports getting clogged by the toxic planet atmosphere are from the like initial expeditions uh when the people died and uh we don't really get like present day exploration outside of the station no no because as our hero chris well our main character chris Calvin, <laughs> yeah not a hero not necessarily the hero and when he arrives on the planet um, shit's gone sideways. Like nothing is ship shape. Nothing is in order. Uh, he gets docked by the automated docking system. When he arrives there, there's one guy that he can find who is drunk wearing pants that have reagent burns all over them. And he's like, oh, <laughs> fucking who are you? <laughs> And he's like, well, what? nobody came here to say hello. Nobody was like, I'm, what, what the fuck's going on? And the guy's like, oh, you, you're going to find out real soon. Like, I'm not going to tell I you. I can't tell you because you wouldn't believe me. He goes, you, you came alone? He's like, yeah, I came alone. He goes, okay, well, there's two other people on this station. There's only two other people on this station. Me and one other guy. You got that? And he's like, uh... Okay, what does that mean? And very quickly you realize um, it's because they all have what they call guests. Or I like it when they call them G-formations. Yes. Yeah. Let's make it extra technical. Yeah, we'll make them G-formations. Jargonize it. Yeah, so basically Solaris is a planet that is ocean. It's all ocean. It's a little bit like Europa, I guess, except with no ice. And for a while I thought that the station was on like the shore, but actually the entire planet is ocean. And so they're just hovering above this ocean. But this ocean is, they think, one whole organism. Right, because it's not water. It's this gelatinous substance that undulates across the whole planet. It is a planet covered in sentient goo. Maybe sentient. I did like the, is it just thinking or is it also sentient or is it conscious? It was a very, how do we parse this out? It, I, the thing I enjoyed most was this is, was an entirely alien being. We get very Star Trek a lot of times where, oh, they're aliens. You can tell on account of how their skin is green. And every once in a while, Star Trek will flirt with the idea of a truly alien consciousness. Like the crystals? Like the crystals yeah. or the, you know, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra, where it's like... But we... even that was like, here's an alien civilization that is really, like, not one-to-one -one with human civilization. But we can still figure out how to talk to them. Right. It, it just takes a little bit of time 
we're still ba- we're still talking. We still think in the same way. We're still conscious in the same way. Right. We and, we have relatable lived experience. Yeah, and we Lem, just have different ways of talking about it. Lem viewed this as a critique on the limit of human consciousness, the limit of human rationality. In a, a little bit like when we talked to George Paxinos, Dr. George Paxinos, about the A River Divided, his book, and he was saying that humans believe they have free will, but it is simply the illusion of free will, that we have, um, we have such a lack of awareness of what goes into our decision-making process that it feels entirely random and spontaneous to us, but in fact, it is guided by our instincts and our experiences and our genetics and our environment. And so what is... What we perceive as free will is simply like the natural outgrowth of who we are and where we are. And that is basically kind of what he's getting at, which is how rational is mankind? How much how much independent thought are we actually capable of? Because we met this planet. And this planet is covered in this goo. And I did like the part where it was like, is it a brilliant ocean or gravitational jelly? Oh, right. Because the, the, I remember watching the, the like older adaptation. Yeah, the 1972 movie. So I remember vaguely starting to watch the, the older adaptation of this book. And they don't really get into why is this planet interesting? Yeah. And this planet is interesting from a, like, cosmological perspective because it's in a binary star system and the understanding of, like, solar system dynamics at the time was, I guess, even even now, uh, the understanding of solar system dynamics is that planets orbiting a binary star system are inherently unstable. Yeah. And so it's not worth investigating planets orbiting these binary stars because the planets, um, like they can't host life because the orbit isn't stable enough uh, for life to just stay around for long enough. So, but this planet, this planet has been orbiting a binary star system for a long time and its orbit is staying stable it somehow. Is fine. Hmm. And then when they realized, oh, this, when they're modeling the the orbit, it's like, oh, it, the orbit should be decaying like this. But then they looked at it again, and it wasn't. Okay, so what's what's changing what, it? What are we missing here? Either something is actively interfering in this orbit to maintain its stability. Or there's some other factor, some other gravitational factor uh, that we didn't account for in our model. And they find out, oh, the planet itself, this gelatinous goo on the surface is generating gravitational manipulations. Yeah. Keeping the planet stable. Right. The planet itself is the alien. Like the it's a single organism. I did like later when we talk about how it can't conceive of individuality, right? Because we never clear any of this up. Because we never actually like contact 
the planet. It's supposed to be beyond our comprehension. And so ultimately, none of it is enumerated for us, the reader, or the participants in the book. And so basically what happens is humanity discovers this planet. We realize that there's something happening here. And we start to study it. And at first, it's a very vigorous scientific study. And by the time we pick up with Chris Calvin, it is so old, it is bordering on almost like a religious reverence for the lack of understanding. At best, we can tell what the planet is doing and we can observe it, but we have no fucking clue why it's doing any of what it's doing. Or how any of what it's doing actually works. Yeah, and it will replicate items, sometimes with great detail, sometimes with an elaborated detail, sometimes with made-up detail. It's, uh, I would say, the replication of things is like AI image generation. Yeah, that is exactly Sometimes what it's like. it'll create a, a model of a person, but there's too many fingers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, it, it doesn't talk to it, at, at least at when we first pick up. They are not sentient things. They are not moving things. They oh, are yeah. like it creates and a sculpture. It, it will not touch a living thing. Right. No, it, it deliberately avoids harming people. It is so not antagonistic it is also not indifferent it will move away from a ship it will get like they said i love the part where you said the only way you can kill yourself on solaris using the ocean is with deliberate effort because it's going to try to not let you do it and you have to keep trying until you literally fuck up bad enough that you kill yourself (laughs) because it tries to not 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 like it doesn't try to hurt people. It just is avoided. It stays out of the way. It stays out of the way. It gets out of the way. Yeah. yeah. And I think that this is probably the most unique concept for an alien life form that I have read or watched. And I have read and watched a lot of sci-fi. Because I think we always want to feel make an alien feel approachable. Or at least we want the reader to feel like they can gain an understanding of... Whatever is happening, even if the characters never do. And yet Lem never gives it to us. He's like, sorry, you are unable to comprehend what is happening here. Or as he says, how can you communicate with the ocean if you can't communicate with each other? Which is a critique on human civilization on Earth. Yeah, I mean, that's what this is supposed to be, too, which is just how can we expect to figure out this thing when we don't even know about ourselves? Because what happens is it starts, so they bombard it with x-rays, and it starts giving the people on the ship visions, or it actually creates a guest, is what they refer to it, or a ghost, of someone that is particularly, I forget how he phrases it, um, enduring, someone that is enduring in their lives. So Chris- In their memory. In their memory. So Chris sees his wife who killed herself 20 years ago at 19. Okay, so (laughs) (laughs) it said she was 19 or 20, depending on when in the book they mention it. But he also talks about 
this like level of familiarity that you get with someone after living with them for several years. Yeah, and that they've gone on how trips did together. She, how did she pass away at 19 or 20? And they also lived together for several years. They pulled a full-on Edgar Allan Poe. Got married at 13 or 15 or whatever, <laughs> whenever he married his first cousin. Um, yeah, that was the one part that I was like, oh, okay. I see that my complaint of why do authors write characters so young uh, is not a new one. It's not a new complaint. <laughs> it's happened before. It has happened before, and it happened in the 60s in this particular book. I wanted him, so he's not even 30. Well, I guess he could be. He'd be. He'd, he's twenty nine. He's twenty nine. Yeah, he's twenty nine. She was nineteen when she died. I wanted him to be like almost forty, and she passed away in her early thirties. Like they'd been together for their lifetime, mm-hmm. and now he had lived part of a life that he should have lived with her, but she was gone. And I think that would have, to me, it would have made his motivation feel more real like tangible because he ultimately abandons all reason because he wants to be with her because he feels like he's gotten his wife back and so when they figure out how to make the guests go away and the planet stops sending them all together he gets really really pissed because he had decided that they were going to be together and as long as he stayed on solaris and they were together that was gravy with him and all of the other people on the ship are like what the fuck is wrong with you we need to get rid of these things. Yeah. yeah. But I think their their guests were were a product of something that was more like negatively traumatic. I think he had to be young so he didn't have any more trauma to bring up. Right. Because they call him, oh, you sweet, innocent child. Because he's like, oh, it was just my wife who killed herself. And they're like, oh, you sweet baby. That's the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Bless. Is basically yeah, basically yeah. What it so comes they as. they yeah. speculate that the the planet mind basically like dissects their brain, their mind, and finds like the most firmly, the most rigidly burned in thing, which is usually the most traumatic thing that's happened to you, and so something that has just been there a long time and is really impactful and just something that's hardwired in your brain. They call it your insistment. Insistment. The okay. The thing that you have packaged away in your brain and closed off. That yeah. you have encapsulated, insisted yes. in your brain. And so similar to how it mimics um, other objects, it tries to do that for the people. It yeah. tries to mimic this burned in thing in their head uh, and reproduce it for them, just like it does for like sets of tools and machinery and whatever whatever they like put within certain range of the planet, it will pop up a replication of that. Yeah, but this time it's people, right? And the people are like human to a like ridiculous degree. So. He takes a blood sample from his dead wife, Harry? late wife. Harry? Yeah. Ari? Uh, I'm guessing it's the Polish. H-A-R-E-Y. Yeah, as a female name. Yeah. He takes a blood sample from her and then puts it under an electron microscope. And all of the, the blood cells look fine. 
the protein structures look fine. The molecules look fine. The atoms, the atoms are not there. Yeah. Where are the atoms? There's just empty space. So basically there's some kind of field that's- Neutrino field, don't they decide? Yeah, they, yeah. they say it's some kind of neutrino field where there's something smaller than atoms that are producing, like being compacted together, artificially constructed together to act- like atoms, and then those neutrino, those atom-shaped neutrino fields operate with each other yeah. to form molecules and proteins and blood cells and everything else to such a degree that it behaves like a human body. Right. Until the same it way an actually actual human body would. Yeah. Except they're indestructible. Pretty much. Yeah, and anytime they come into a situation where they are going to be separated from the person they are visiting, or they're trapped, or they're harmed, or whatever, then they become very inhuman, very strong, quick to heal. I think there's that one point where he locks her in and she opens the door and she's actually like she doesn't have a face because they only exist when they are being observed by the person or they are observing the person that they're visiting. Yeah, I highlighted the line where she goes through the door and the panel of the door broke in two, hung crookedly on its hinges, and an orange and white creature with a livid blue lifeless face threw its arms around me, sobbing. Yeah. And he had just she was in, like taking a shower in the bathroom. Yeah. And he had stepped outside because he'd noticed or she'd told him that she felt like she always had to be able to see him. She's like, I just need to be with you. I don't know why. So he he like he sneaks out the door of his room while she's in the bathroom and and just like stands in the hallway. And then he hears a clatter inside the room and he tries to open the door, but she's pulling on it. But then she pulls on this like plasteel door. She's pulling so on a push, hard on a push door. Yeah, it, yeah. it opens towards him, so yeah. he's trying to open it towards him. But she's trying to open it towards her, and then she just like gets frantic, and she literally pulls this door through the door frame so that yeah. it bends and snaps and whatever. So these guests. Although they look human, they're not human. Right. And he's he fights it for a little while. He's like, oh, no, this is terrible. This isn't really her. This is really sad. And then he's like, fuck it. I can fuck it. I don't care. Okay. Well, on that note. Yeah. He doesn't. They don't actually have sex. They do. She mentions what? her little deaths. What? Yeah. I don't remember that. He says he can tell from the quality of her little deaths that she's despondent i assume that was a translation error for her orgasms okay <laughs> and he mentions uh, their caresses yeah i thought they were just snuggling oh well i mean maybe that too i mean his wife came back he's 29 right and he hasn't had I, another girlfriend I since then don't imagine they just snuggled but oh, maybe they did i don't know i don't know but I figured they weren't because he mentioned like they were just spending time together, like being too into him. She had become more human than Harry ever was. 
Because the longer she's around, the more she starts to realize there's something wrong with me. I don't think I'm who I say I am. What am I? And he's like, well, you're, um, you're my wife. And he's, she's like, <laughs> you were sick. She's like, was I sick? <laughs> Do yeah. I have epilepsy? Yeah. In a manner of speaking. Yeah. Like it did bother me how much he just does not tell her the truth. Right. She's All like, he had to do is like, just tell me the truth. Straight up, tell her the truth from the beginning. Yeah, she's like, "Cross your heart, tell me the truth." And he's like, "Cool." And then he lies straight to her face over and to all the other people in the group. Because, right. So she drinks liquid oxygen. And I did like that. He has the the one guy that he actually likes. So there's a scientist, and we never find out what anybody else's guest is. Which I don't know why they never let the that's guests good, meet. I realized that the guy that's up in the lab. We only Sartorius. ever see, yeah, we only ever see um, this straw hat, a straw hat as yeah. like something his guest is wearing. Yeah. But we never see the other guy. No. Uh, his guest. No. We see the guy who kills himself because there's a guy who has just completed suicide before Chris got there. And who was Chris's mentor. Yeah. He's actually the one Chris was coming to study under because at this point, serious scientists are not who's coming to Solaris. And even though at one time the station may have had 100 people in it, there are now three. There were going to be four. There are now three. And we meet that guy's guest, which was one of the most like wow, this is a really dated description <laughs> because he, uh, his guest is a large boned African-American woman who gets described. He, I, um, he does, he does describe her or he makes a reference to Venus de Milo. Yeah. The, I mean, the, um, yeah, the, the sculpture. Yeah. The little, um, if you, the is fertility it, or sculpture. is it the venus of willendorf venus of willendorf yeah it'd be one. the venus of willendorf because yeah. that's the one that he like makes a, a reference yeah. to that venus yeah um and that i interpreted as the venus of willendorf which is this like fertility yeah it's sculpture a, it's palm sized and it's got cornrows um which we think they're cornrows it just doesn't have a face and then it has really large breasts and a larger stomach and then like a pubic triangle and he describes her as that but also um, like she walks by and he's like, I should be able to smell the acrid putrid tang of her sweat. It's not the best moment in this book, but it's blessedly short lived. And then he goes down to see the guy's body, which is in like the air conditioning room, like uh, it, the cold it's room in the freezer, in the freezer. And she's lying next to him and he describes her toes as uh, varying sized black beans or something. It's just the most like, okay, <laughs> that's all right. It's fine. It, it's blessedly short and it's over quickly. And then we never see her again because um, he actually asks Harry, did you come up here from the cold room? And she's like, yeah, it was cold down there. So I don't know if, I don't know why that guy's guest could we never come back to it? Cause he never goes back in there to see if right. she's still with him or not. Right. Um, but after a while, Harry realizes what's going on. She figures it out. And she is ultimately the one who decides to not stay with him because they figure out how to destroy these things. Once he figures out they're made of neutrinos, they figure out how to make them poof. Right. Sartorius is a physicist and yeah. he's up in the physics lab. And so he, he figures out, um, Hey, uh, here's how we destroy here. Here's how we disrupt these like 
artificially stabilized neutrino fields that this yeah. planet is has constructed and now i can make a little device at the end of the book yeah that will disrupt them and pff, they're gone you know what i would love to see a rewrite of this book where one of the main characters is a woman that would be really interesting yeah because yeah. i think a woman would react to this situation very differently <laughs> a man in her bedroom <laughs> a guy show a guy she never wanted to see again or hoped to see again show up. I just it's like why does Ariel not have a mom? Because if if Ariel's mom was alive and her dad was freaking out, she'd have been like, "Honey, she's sixteen. If you wait a week, she's gonna forget all about him." And the just end of let the, movie. the end of the movie because. Yeah, the only reason Ariel isn't in any way obsessed with Eric is because her dad doesn't want her to be obsessed with Eric. Like, that's how. So, I always wonder what would like these old, old sci fi books where all the main characters are male. I'm like, what happens if one of these main characters was a woman? How does this play out differently? And I think we would get a very different story because it's three dudes who cannot handle their shit. They cannot handle the right. one guy's just drunk all the time and he like lives in the radio room the other guy has barricaded himself in the lab we at no time treat these we at no time treat these characters these additional people these ghosts uh clinically they're not like okay i know you're not who you say you are even though you think you are who you say you are and um well i would say that's the difference between our point of view character and the other two guys I guess the other three guys, all three of the, the Chris kind of treats Harry as a person. Yeah. Eventually. A person who is not Harry, but looks like Harry. Right. And yeah. it's like, you are like the seed of who you are is like my internal model of Harry. So you're a lot like Harry. You share like basically the per same personality profile yeah. as Harry, just... And mannerisms. And man, yeah. Like yeah. your reflexes and all that. Uh, your little like quirks. You're Harry to yeah. start off with. The seed of you is my model of Harry. Yeah. But then you grew out of that. And so he acknowledges to her that like, yes, like you, you started off as Harry, but I've fallen in love with you, who yeah. you are. As the result of growing from what my model of Harry was. Right. I mean, this whole thing takes over, takes place over the course of two months. Yeah. So, and during those two months, they hide their guests from each other in shame the entire time. Except for Chris. He Except bring, for Chris. He brings Harry around. Yeah. I was wondering, like, what was the other guy's name that started with an S? They both, it was Sartorius and... Sloan or... Snout? Snout. Um, I, I get the feeling that Snout, like, repeatedly kills his guest. Yeah, I keep saying he got divorced. And we well, don't even they know they are who... there one time, and he hides them in a, like, a cabinet or a locker. And that's pretty much it. Okay. Um, And I just, I don't know, I feel like it's a missed opportunity. We never know what happened if they meet each other. Right. Um, and the, the debate, the debate that we never settle is, are these a conscious attempt of the planet to be able to relate to the humans on this, on this station? Or is it simply like another outgrowth of the thing that made the 
the ocean mimic ships. Right. Is this uh, like an another automatic reproduction of a thing? Yeah. Like within its sphere of influence, or is this a conscious decision of the planet thing uh, to interact with the humans? And if it's a conscious decision of the planet thing to to interact with the humans, is the planet giving them a gift what they think it's a gift is the planet giving them something that it thinks is a gift to them or is it like savvy enough to understand that it's traumatizing them yeah and we never really settle that no we don't we do talk about like he has a lot of nightmares there's a lot of hanging plot that we never really discuss he has nightmares about people watching him or something watching him or he feels like the darkness is watching him. And then we discuss that the planet may not view our conscious state as our sentient state. It may view our dream state, our sleep state as our conscious state because it may exist in perpetual like subconscious Mm-hmm. What we would view as a subconscious state. And so it may be, it may view when we are in our subconscious, like when we're asleep, as when we are actually conscious. And so it's appealing to our dream self, not to our conscious self. Right. So it may be fulfilling what are like legitimate subconscious desires. Right. But then our conscious mind isn't aware of what our subconscious mind actually wants you know what bothered me most about this book is he never listens to the recording that he finds i why did he not listen to it right away no he hides it under the 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 bed and then he hears a snippet of it when harry is listening to it and then he goes to look for it the next morning and she's like i hit it and he's like cool and he never looks for it again he doesn't even ask her where it is no he's just like well that's fine and i was like oh that no, he he hid it. Like there's a poster on the wall. There's a poster with the map on the wall. And he hid this recording behind it. And you don't want to know anything about it. He does eventually go look up. When he comes to the space station, Um, his mentor guy, it's, not, it's like Gaborian. Gaborian, Gabrain, Gabarian. Gabarian has left a like chapter index he's left like a look up this book and then look up these apocryphal texts or oh yeah he left a note yeah and that's the the note that he left and so he's like okay cool in fact he even talks to gabarian at one point and in the dream right yeah and he's like oh this is a dream he's like oh is it and he's like why i mean you're dead so you can't be talking to me and he's like sure if you sure let's go with that he's like well if you hadn't been four days late i wouldn't have had to do what i had to do He's like, what do you mean? And he doesn't, he's just, maybe I've been reading too many Sarah J. Mass books and I have zero tolerance for incurious characters at this point. But like, I, I just, the fact that he is like, no, you're a dream. And Gabarian's like, I mean, I might not be. I mean, literally, dude, you are being visited by the ghost of your dead wife because a planet-sized ocean thinks that that's how it can contact you. And yet when this guy shows up, you're like, no, that's a step too fucking far. I don't, I don't know. I just, 
I was yeah. like, uh, okay. I mean, that's a minor criticism in the sea of other things that are happening in the ship. Every time we go to the library and then we launch off into chapter long descriptions of shit that happens on this planet. I mean, I get it. I get what he's trying to say, which is this is an alien environment and it does stuff and we don't get it. But there's that whole description where he's talking about that guy that was like the first guy on the planet. And he was like deeply in love with all these things that the ocean would do where it would send up like the bubble and then the bubble would collapse and create like a spine and these other things. And then oh, yeah, he had all these names for the different kinds of structures yeah. that it would produce. Right. And they're all like mathematical in nature. Like if you made a 3d model of some like mathematical equation it would look like that so it's like that is it varies thinking? over time that's what it would look like yeah <laughs> i was i was imagining like if they actually uh had a conversation with the the planet with solaris yeah oh hey you create these like massive structures that appear to be like models of mathematical systems like or like 3d renderings of mathematical systems and like are you trying to solve some problem and you need like a particular state of some like 3d mathematical model uh, because we see these things pop up and then after a few hours they dissolve and the and solaris being like oh oh i didn't realize that i was doing that i was just thinking about shit yeah I, I didn't know that it like popped out like a zit my favorite was the mimoids and how they kept describing it as both pink and flesh colored and so in my head it was just like a like giant dicks it was like columns that were pink and flesh colored <laughs> so i was just like oh it's like ocean dicks <laughs> so at the end of the at the end of the book when he goes to visit one I was like, oh, he's standing on, like, the ball sack of this giant ocean. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm going to land on the shore. Oh, okay. And then behind him is the shaft that, like, goes up into the into, yeah. the, into space or whatever. And I was like, oh, okay. it's <laughs> another giant dick. Um, it wasn't, obviously. But at that point, my brain was just like, I can't. I cannot figure out what this man is trying to make me picture this feels like a book I want to have watched the movie and then go back and watch the and read the book. So, so that you can have some kind of narrative. So I when I'm getting the description, I can just throw in a movie thing instead of me having to be like, what? I had to go back and reread some of the descriptions like two or three times. So I was me like, too. What are you trying I had to, to say? I had to go back and reread more like when he was doing something and... I'd be like, wait, but he's over here. And it yeah. would be like, there was like one line where he like left a room and did something else all in one sentence that I like accidentally skimmed over. Yeah. And like, I just, I skipped one line in a paragraph. Time would pass I, between sentences too. I missed like him leaving his, him like leaving his bedroom or going into a different room or whatever. And I'd be like, wait, he's not in that room right now. When did this happen? How yeah. much did I skip? Did I skip a whole paragraph? No, I just, I missed one line. Yeah. And so like some of the pacing of just like the action, just like moving around the ship. Yeah. It felt really condensed. 
I finally got so I was I didn't care. Like if if he was doing a thing, I was like, okay, he did the thing because a lot of times it was like it especially code switching, like he'd be in the library and you would have just slogged me through 40 pages of inane description of iridescent space bubbles and giant ocean dicks. And then all of a sudden shit's happening and I have to keep up with what's happening again. And it was like, okay, hang on. What? I got to wake up. Now he's having an argument with his girlfriend. Yeah. And now, now we're talking about science. Now we're talking about philosophy. Now we're talking about psychology. Now we're talking about public perception of Solaris. And it was like whiplash almost. I mean, it was fine. It was okay. You know what? You don't mainline this book. You read this book a couple pages at a time and then you sit for a minute or you watch the movie and then you go back and read the book because you want more context. Yeah. Um, you know who I, who I wanted an entire book from was the guy that was giving the testimony in the apocryphal text. Oh yeah. When he finally finds it and it's a it's not a scientist. Everybody else is a scientist. This, this guy's basically is like a professional curious. pilot. He's a pilot and he he well, they find him later. It's a two-person thing. They they go off on this expedition. And the second person is missing. And we don't know what happened to them. But this is his testimony. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. I was flying through and all it, like, I don't know what he was flying through. Because it was another one where it was descriptions. And it was like Swiss cheese, basically. He's flying through ocean Swiss cheese. All these little holes. And inside yeah, of it. Yeah, there's these, like, tunnels through the fog. And yeah. then, like, Whole there the ocean the gel has two layers. Yeah, there's like an a yellowish orange layer, and and the, with a thinner black layer on top or right. red. Uh, it's blood it's, black, it, blood black. It keeps saying that it looked black in the blue star's light, but then like red in the red star's light. Yeah, so like a dark red, I guess. And so there were like holes in the top layer so you could see the yellow underneath. Right. And, so and it he's was like, making oh, landscapes maybe, and shit. Maybe my buddy, uh, he fell in the ocean gel thing and and he's in one of these holes because we know it gets out of the way of living creatures. So he he talks his way through visiting, flying through the these tunnels in the thick, thick fog. Yeah. And vis, like investigating the holes in the top layer of the gel and describing what he saw there. Yeah, like a landscape. And he says it all looks like it was made out of plaster. And then he's like, well, that was weird. And so he just goes like to a garden another back hole. On Earth. And eventually he finds a giant baby. And it's moving and it's like articulated like a giant baby. And they're like, okay, so how do you know it was a baby? And he was like, because it looked like a baby. And they're like, okay, like so it was toddler. baby sized? And they're like, no, it was gigantic. And they're like, okay, if it was gigantic, it couldn't be a baby. He's like, it looked like a baby. Like, I don't know. Do you have children? <laughs> he was like, I, what is wrong with you guys? I'm telling you, it was a baby. It was just a giant baby. And they're like, well, if it's giant, it can't be a baby. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And finally, he's like... This isn't about me. I don't care what you think of me right now. I'm just reporting the facts and I've got more facts, but I'm not <laughs> oh. telling you unless you, you come back and formally tell me you believe me. I wonder if Stan, I'm just going to call him Stan. I wonder if Stan had a conversation with someone just like, <laughs> I'm going to put 
the conversation that I had the other day with the stupidest person I ever met because I was talking about my <laughs> toddler with them and they just, it seems like they have never interacted with the toddler before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they call it they call it a mental autopsy because what they think happened is this guy fell in the ocean and the ocean was rifling through his mind because he had passed. Right. As it like dissolved him. Yeah. And as it did that, it was like playing out his memories in an attempt to maybe understand him, which kind of sounds creepy, but also sounds like the planet from the Elemist Chronicles. <laughs> from oh, yeah. The Animorphs series. Which is the entire, but it's not the ocean. It's like a giant plant in the ocean. It's like the seaweed. The seaweed is one entire organism. Right. Yeah. I don't know. There were a few gems inside the, like, the long info dumps about yeah. the world building. Like, there's the, like, longer lived mathematically based structures are called symmetriads. And so he's talking about, like, just the beauty of seeing this gigantic organic looking thing that's just gradually shifting shape over time and on the inside it has like this really complicated mathematical structure yeah and it uh but then when it's their time they just fall apart and so he's describing it as uh, a symphony, a symphony very well, but a kind that writes itself and drowns itself out. Terrible is the end of the symmetriad. No one who sees it can resist the impression of witnessing a tragedy, if not a murder. Yeah. Yeah. They mention that again later when they're talking about um, what can we do to get rid of these things? Well, what we could do if it's feeding off of our memories is erase our memories or erase our conscious selves right yeah and they're like, like give themselves lobotomies or something yeah they're like well that would be at worst a, or at best a tragedy at worst a murder yeah and yeah i mean i really think this book is worth reading i think this book is worth going through even knowing you're not going to get any payoff but you're going to get some really banging questions because um, it does talk a lot about like the matter of individuality and what happens when something doesn't have a concept of individuality and what happens when we meet something that is entirely other to the point where we cannot even conceive of whether or not it is conscious. Yeah. Uh, like, okay. So at the end, what I think this was probably the most like succinct, um, communication or like conveyance in the writing of what is this book about yeah each of us is aware he's a material being subject to the laws of physiology and physics and that the strength of all our emotions combined cannot counteract those laws it can only hate them the eternal belief of lovers and poets in the power of love which is more enduring than death the Finis vitae sed non amoris, whatever the Latin pronunciation is, <laughs> uh, that has pursued us through the centuries is a lie. But this lie is not ridiculous. It's simply futile. And then as he's like pondering, pondering the ocean from the shore of the giant space dick, uh, 
and like lamenting the fact that Harry left him or decided that she was better off gone as a, a construct well, she didn't want to be a thing. puppet she knew she right. was simply being used by the ocean for some purpose but she didn't know what the purpose was right or just created and cast off yeah let go um but he says i didn't believe for a minute that this liquid colossus that this ocean lifting me up unwittingly like a speck of dust could be moved by the tragedy of two human beings yes yeah, I mean, I think that's ultimately what you should take away from this book. If you're coming to it because you want the eldritch horror of showing up on a space station and there's these beings that look like your friends but actually are not your friend because it... I was waiting for the other people on the space station to also be an extension. Or him. Or him. I because, thought, oh, maybe, maybe all of them are just constructs of this planet mind as it's tr exploring like oh all these humans have come to visit me and all these things have crashed and i've like consumed and digested them yeah and then like maybe there was a space station or like a research station and it fell in and now we're just getting this ocean brain kind of simulating okay right let's let me explore internally what would the lived experience of these creatures be like? So I'm going to simulate I'm simu yeah. what, what well, it would have been. almost crashes at the beginning. So I was waiting for him to have actually crashed. And yeah. this was all because all the books that he reads, he's already read. And all the people that he meets, he knows of or has met previously. And so I was waiting and I thought maybe that's why he can't see their visitors because he wouldn't know what their visitors would be. Oh, yeah. And that, but that ends up not being the payoff. So what you take away from this really is not plot. It's the thought experiment. And I think the 60s sci-fi, I think 60s sci-fi is, you know, really late 50s, post-nuclear bomb is sci-fi as a, who are we as a society? Who are we as a people? It's, posing these thoughts like like the star maker where it's supposed to be like they say we don't need other worlds we need mirrors yeah so it is intended to hold up a mirror to human experience and get you to ask questions like what is individuality what is consciousness what would happen if you were presented with a situation where you had to interact with someone wholly other than you. Could you do it? Would you want to do it? And what, because they even talk about how every time there was some huge tragedy, there was a discussion of wiping out the planet of Solaris. Okay, well, right. how do like we defeat that? Like it did that them? intentionally. Like it did. And then everyone's like, we can't assume malice because we literally can't assume it is consciousness conscious enough to feel malice or that if it is conscious that malice is something it is capable of feeling so we can't destroy something not even knowing if it did it on purpose or if it is actually capable of purpose right like you don't get mad at a tornado right for you know ripping a roof off right it's it, that's what it is. Right. It's a, it's a process. It's a happening. It's a happening. And, 
The 60s this. would approve of the happening. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and it's like, it would be like if we had to use your metaphor, tornado, like storm chasers. And at first storm chasers chased tornadoes, believing them to be actual entities. But at this point it has been so long and so little evidence is even comprehensible that they are simply observing the tornadoes in the hopes that eventually all the pieces will be put together. And he has that part at the end where he's talking about God and he's like, do you believe in God? And his, his little friend, whose name I've forgotten again, squat or squat or snout, snout. Thank you. He calls himself rat, the rat. Yes. Um, rat is like, um, what? Nobody believes in God anymore. He's like, no, but not like Greek gods where they're human and not God, infallible God, like the Christian God, but like a God that is capable of God-like actions, but is not infallible. A, what, what did he, what's the first? A flawed way? God. Flawed? I think it was a different word that he ended up using, but then um, a defective God. A defective God. And so yeah. he was he was explaining about this defective God, and then he called it this crippled God. Yeah, which is the last book in the Malzan Book of the Fallen <laughs> series. Says, and so I thought, oh, I wonder if oh, that's where Steven Erickson got the idea of the crippled God. He could have. It was from this book. He says, "I mean, a God whose deficiencies don't arise from the simple-mindedness of his human creators, but constitute his most essential, imminent character. This would be a God limited in his omniscience and omnipotence, one who can make mistakes in foreseeing the future of his works, who can find himself horrified by the course of events he has set in motion. This is a crippled God." who always desires more than he's able to have and who doesn't always realize this to begin with, who has built clocks, but not the time they measure. And then the next paragraph is talking about, uh, it's kind of comparing, comparing humans to clocks that have been constructed by a crippled, uh, defective God. And those clocks through the like resulting behavior of their design feel all this like suffering and everything is it the fault of the god that it did that it constructed these clocks that feel all these bad emotions yeah and should should the clocks like wish that they didn't feel these negative emotions so yeah. it, it's an interesting yeah idea about um yeah, I think human nature. The most interesting part to me was they finally get rid of their guests. And because they have probably because, but we don't ever exactly say it's because they actually create a mind, a mental like an AI version of Chris and they beam it into the ocean and they like tr send the space station well, traveling think, around beaming it into the ocean. I think they're trying to imply that his his encephalogram. They yeah. took like a recording of his brain waves and beamed it into the planet like a few times a day for several weeks. And then there was some like bubble thing. Yeah. And then after the bubble thing, their guests stopped coming back. Yeah. So I think <laughs> because, because Rat and Sartorius 
are constantly like killing off their guests yeah. because they don't like having them around. Whereas Chris is like, no, like even if this just started as this very shallow recreation, this is now a, an actual person yeah, that has thoughts and feelings and guys, we can't just kill them off like that. Yeah. Jeez. I think the and, most, yeah. <laughs> but they just kept killing them off anyway. <laughs> um, and so they noticed right away that, oh, something has changed. Like the only thing that ha we've changed that we're doing is we sent down this brain recording to the planet a whole bunch of times. And then this bubble thing that we've never seen happen before showed up. And immediately after the bubble thing, yeah, I, I did my like twice daily um, get rid of my guest. <laughs> They're gone until you sleep again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did my I did my daily, uh, you know, kill off my guest ritual. Yeah. And and then they didn't come back. Huh. I guess. Maybe. <laughs> Probably the most scientific thing they do in the whole book is they finally get rid of them. They stop coming back and they're like, okay, are you leaving? And they're all like, oh, fuck no. That was cool. Let's see if we can get it to do so. Let's poke it again. <laughs> Let's poke it, it some more. Time. He says, yet expectation lived on in me. The last thing she had left behind. What further consummations, mockeries, torments did I still anticipate? I had no idea as I abided in the unshaken belief that the time of cruel wonders was not yet over. So he's looking forward to the next cruel wonders. Yeah. What are we going to do next? Like, well, oh, we've been literally poking this planet for a hundred years trying to get it to do something. And we got it. Look, guys, we got it to do something. And they're like, well, we don't know if it's an actual experiment because it's yes, every they come back every time we kill them, but they don't come back changed. It's not varying the experiment. It's just reproducing the the situation over and over again. Right. Unless the what's varying is them. Yeah. yeah. And it's just monitoring them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a, this, yeah, this felt sci-fi. <laughs> and it felt that, that period in sci-fi post, like, optimistic sci-fi and really pre-Star Trek optimism in that um, let's project humanity into the future and use it as a way of explaining what we're going to be like and what we would be like in these situations, which we can't model on earth. But it was also like pre cyberpunk cynicism. Yeah. It wasn't as cynical as cyberpunk ends up being. That's why he wasn't dead. That's right. why he wasn't. <laughs> that's why, that's why he wasn't just a simulation in the yeah. jail brain right. the whole time. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it was good. Yeah. So, I think that's good. I think we're going to watch the movies and talk about them now, too, so we can kind of get, I guess, Lem's primary criticism of all the movies was that they were not an exploration of the limits of human cognitive, like, cognitive ability it was in a, the way that he wanted them to be. a more narrative dramatization of the setting. Well, it's probably like, oh, how spooky would that be? And let's talk about how scary that is. I mean, I, I think I've seen them, but I don't think I... It's like um, Pan's Labyrinth. Like I knew I had watched Pan's Labyrinth and I knew I had seen it, but in my mind I had no memory of it. And I think that I'm I'm there with the – at least I've seen the older Solaris. I don't think I've seen the new one with George Clooney of all people. The new one from 2000 and what? 2002. It's newer than the 1972 one. 
the, think the 22 year old one is newer than the 52 year old one correct sir okay. I'm, am i wrong no, I, I just wanted to throw the actual yeah, numbers out okay, there thanks. to make people yeah. feel old. Yeah, to make people feel old. People me feel old. Thanks. Myself too. Oh, okay. Well, it's fine. It's fine. I've been on threads a lot. We're kind of done talking about this book, so I'm just going to do a little bit of a PSA. I'm on Instagram, so you can find me on Instagram, but I'm also on threads. I use both of these services like they're MySpace because it is my formative social media experience, and I don't intend to change this. So if you want to know what it's like to see me authentically interact with both of these, congratulations, you still can. So go ahead on there and find me. But I'm Strange and Beautiful Network in both locations. I'm also Rachel underscore Year in Books, where I'm actually going through a bunch of different sci-fi books. I just finished Invisible Man today, so I'll be talking about that soon. But the point of me discussing this was uh, there was a, I don't know, a thing on threads, a viral thing on threads that was about like um, people being too old to read books. If you're going to go on and make a video, you know, take care of yourself, put on some lip gloss. And it was a very like all of them were very ageist, like age shamey. But age, like, my age, shamey, where I'm like... I'm oh, not. shaming, like, late 30s? Yeah, like, ew, you're gross and old and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, this is either bots, which it could be bots, or it's like a proliferation of um, very young people into social media space, which is... And finding out that social media space is full of millennials? Yeah, I think Threads is basically just millennials, like... Y'all, it's like baby Twitter. It's it's hard to navigate. It's difficult to figure out how you've replied to shit. I mean, it's not the best, most streamlined thing I've ever seen in my life. So, of course, only millennials are like, I can make this work. I can figure it out. And I think then you get people coming on there. Like, I could tell Kate does a lot of stuff on TikTok for Feast, Sheath, and Shatter. And the people who watch our videos for Feast, Sheath, and Shatter on TikTok are like 25 to 34, and that is not our target audience. Unless you're a very open-minded 25-year-old who loves Sarah J. Mass but doesn't mind to hear criticism, because um, I think that there are more than two opinions in the world, so there's not just right and wrong in certain things. In some things, yes, there is right and wrong, but um, I think that for people who grew up on social media, that is a difficult concept. Um, I just don't need to agree with everybody and I don't need everybody to agree with me. And I think that's where we all need to be personally. Um, that has nothing to do with anything that we talked about in this one. That was just me like mystified at the push to extremes and that maybe we don't need other planets. We need a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that there is a place for this kind of sci-fi. And I think the fact that we as a culture have seemed to have moved past it entirely is kind of a shame because there is a place for the thought experiment. This is book is a thought experiment. It's not necessarily plot driven. It's thought provoking. It's intended to be thought provoking. That is the purpose of it. Like I suggested a movie on both. It is a thought provocation. Yeah, it that's is. That's all it is. That's all it is. Like I shared a movie that I really enjoy called The Man from Earth on the Instagram and just suggested people read it if you like this kind of sci-fi because it was written by a, like the screenplay is a 1960s sci-fi guy 
who wrote a screenplay. It just happens to have been produced in the 2000s. And so it is a single room thought experiment of these people talking about this one character who claims, uh, says, okay, what if I was a 14 or think 12,000 year old caveman? Prove me wrong. And so it is a thought experiment of how would you prove him wrong? How would you prove that he wasn't that old? What, what would you do if you met someone who was like that? And I freaking love it. I don't care that nothing happens. I don't care that there's no pew, pew, bang, bang, boom, boom, you know. Right, but there's a historian, a biologist. An a, artist. An uh, artist. Yeah. A, um, a very religious person. And yeah. one more. Right. I don't know. It's just a, yeah. just go look it up. It's The Man from Earth. There's a sequel, which is also good. Tonally a lot different, but also good. And I think that as a culture, it would benefit us to have this. But what we have to do first is stop vilifying intellectual books, intellectual things. You could make this into a movie and you could produce the same effect. You could create a movie that was like this. That right. That was very introspective or yeah. uh, cerebral, as your mom calls it. Yeah, because yeah, cerebral. Because I mean... Uh, this type of book is not for everyone. Not everyone is going to sit down and glean the amount of meaning from this book simply because it is convoluted and difficult to read. And you have to be invested in understanding and be, be willing to go back and spend time steeping in it and figuring out what he's trying to say. And I don't mind doing that. Sometimes, sometimes I do. Um, you don't mind doing that. Uh, but if you could translate this into a visual medium, like we did with the movies, but maybe if we tackled the same thing. Right. Kept the spirit rather than just the the setting. Yeah. And the small amount of narrative that exists. Yeah. I, well, I think what I'm saying is there's a place for this type of this type of narrative. And we just have to figure out how it fits into modern the modern way of interacting with media, which isn't always books. Sometimes it's visual. Sometimes it's short short form visual sometimes it's long form visual and maybe that's just the challenge moving forward is i think we are all collectively done <laughs> with shallow narratives in movies if the way that literally every every marvel slash sony slash dc slash comic book movie that came out in the last like 18 months has been absolutely slammed critically slammed by everybody because I think we're tired of the meaningless. I mean, there's a place for meaningless entertainment. You've listened to some of our podcasts. We love some really bad movies because they're just entertaining and there's no shame in a thing being what it is and a movie being just entertaining. But it's like anything else. I don't want to eat only candy. I need to have other stuff sometimes too. It, to provide the contrast and to make me feel like, okay, I just watched a bunch of really heady movies in a row. I think what I want now is like love bites. I just want to watch something that's right. fun, movie frivolous, movie candy, me meaningless. Junk food movie. For fun. And But I think what happens is we are so starved for meaningful narratives that we find them where they aren't. Like I see a lot of people derive a lot of meaning from Sarah J. Mass, and that's fine. I literally do not have any problem with people reading Sarah J. Mass books and really enjoying them and gleaning meaning from them, but I'm never going to because I find her narrative shallow 
And that's a personal preference and that's fine. I'm allowed to have that opinion. I enjoyed this. If I gave this to Kate, she would never read past the first paragraph. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a bit of a soapbox. It was meandering. And as usual, we came to no conclusions. But I put a lot of stuff on your table. This was you, also- You th- provoked some thoughts. This was also a thought of a thought experiment. Just think about what I was saying. Derive meaning from where you derive meaning. But I think it's important to have things in your life that you derive meaning from. It doesn't have to be Stanislav's Solaris. It can be Kingdom of Ash. It doesn't matter. But just realize that there's a place for that. And I think maybe collectively, if you are a creator, realize there's a place for that. And maybe we just need to push the boat back towards meaning a little bit and away from pure entertainment, like literally just explosions like Michael Bay. That's what I'm talking about. And... I think that's probably a good place to leave it before I meander any farther down this already meandering path. So remember, sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful, too. So be who you are and love what you love. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye.